This is Glistening Particles, and I'm Jane, your host. I like to hear inspiring stories from people that I barely know and share them with you, and that's what we do here. I never know how it's going to go. I never know what they're going to say, but it's always a good story. In this episode, I'm talking with spiritual ecologist Heather Lynn Mann. She's a practitioner of Buddhism, sailing, and mindful advocacy. And back in 2007, she and her husband and their cat Dingy went on a 15,000 nautical mile six-year ocean voyage. And she's written a book about it. And we're going to hear about that and more today. So with that, here's Heather. Hi, Heather. Welcome to the show. Good morning, Jane. I'm so happy to have you here. We are on opposite coasts for everyone listening to know what we're doing. It's about 7 a.m. my time, and Heather is over on the East Coast, so it's about 10-ish. And um, we are we were introduced to each other through my brother, <clears throat> and Heather is, she's about to launch a book that she wrote about a really exciting adventure. The book is titled Ocean of Insight, A Sailor's, a Sailor's Voyage from Despair to Hope. And uh, Heather and I sort of met each other yesterday on a pre-call, and I think you're going to enjoy every bit of this story. I know I did. So with that introduction, Heather, um, let's start with, if you can tell the listeners a little bit about, just about the story, just about how you came to write this book and, and give a little bit of background for us. Sure. Thanks. Um, that's, that's super broad, but go for it. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. Um, I actually was an environmental advocate for... Um, couple of decades and got pretty worn out, um, needed a break, um, had uh, quite a bit of challenges that I was dealing with day in and day out. Not everybody agrees with you when you're an environmental advocate and um, pretty much um, I got pretty battle weary. And one day my husband came home after um, years of you know being at pretty much the peak of our careers and he said it's time we can go and pursue our dream to um, buy a sailboat and to um, sail over the horizon and can I, can I ask you one quick question how did this sure. dream, how did this dream how was this dream born how did you know that's what you were waiting for well you know when we were dating back in our youth um, we would walk the piers of different marinas in Chicago and then later in California hand in hand we'd just march right past the no trespassing signs and act <laughs> like we knew what we were going to do and we would wander the piers just drooling over these boats we didn't sail at the time but um, we were fascinated by the rigging and by their potential to just go anywhere in the world mm -hmm. and we you know being nature lovers we thought wouldn't it be great to just disappear um, by the, the two of us into the wilderness of the ocean and go off into some adventure somewhere unscripted 
And so that was something that um, hung with us over the years. We learned to sail. We sailed a lot on inland lakes um, over the years. We chartered a few boats in the Caribbean, but that dream never died. And so one day he came home and said, let's let's do it. We can do it now. We've saved enough money. So um, we left our big jobs and stepped aboard and ended up having a five-year sabbatical stretch into six years as we sailed up and down the East Coast and through the Caribbean and got ourselves into and out of all kinds of trouble. (laughs) What an adventure, though. I mean, there's almost, you can't even predict the number of different things that you would run into on that. Well, and you couldn't predict it in the morning, what would happen (laughs) 10 minutes later. (laughs) It was a very humbling experience. And what was so great was I got a couple of years into the journey, and I realized that there was a spiritual journey happening within the physical journey. Mm. And I was being profoundly changed by what I was experiencing in my time with what I came to call the great Atlantic teacher. Mm. And I um, ended up just really being called to write this story. And so it's an interesting um, challenge for me because I don't consider myself a writer other than, you know, professional stuff I did in my nonprofit. But I had to figure out how to braid a story of environmental awareness and um, um, concern for um, the future. Mm-hmm. Um, my Buddhist practice, because this was the spiritual voyage, you know, the secular Eastern philosophy that was the lens that I was looking everything through. And then this sailing adventure, which just, you know, was nonstop. And so I think the book ended up being a beautiful memoir that is a a action-packed sailing adventure, definitely, that really in its reflective moments um, challenges us to think about what it is we're doing in the world and how it is we can be in a way that has um, far more um, compassion for the world that we share this with other living beings. Well, it must have been, I mean, from all of the work that you did for the environment, because I know you did a lot in the Madison area, and then you're doing more of that now where you are on the East Coast. It must have been eye-opening to see what's happening along the coast you know, up and down the continents and and the different countries that are influencing that. How did that change your perspective on the work that you do here and now? Mm. Well, I could see evidence of um, climate change. Mm -hmm. And I could, uh, you know, when I was scuba diving, for example, just seeing the dead reefs Mm -hmm. and knowing the... um, you know, reading the guidebooks and saying, you know, you must go to this reef, it is the best in the Caribbean, and then going there and having the entire thing be bleached out from a hurricane that, you know, brought too much warm water and caused too much stress. And um, very tragic and sad. And then the other thing that I did while I was traveling was I made a point to um, find uh, my colleagues on the islands Mm -hmm. and set up appointments with them and and just talk to them about Mm. what is it like here for you and what are your concerns about the future. And I found a tremendous amount of sophistication and awareness 
in um, the professional environmental advocates in the islands, be they from government or nonprofit or, or you know, some sort of civic leadership, business leadership, mm-hmm. that they know what's going on. And the really disappointing thing is that in these islands, these people live very softly on the earth. Um, they are not living high material lifestyles, and um, yet they are going to be paying a tremendous price for um, the grandeur of other people's lifestyles on the planet. So um, there's a real moral and ethical calling and a responsibility that I feel to them and even to um, the other life forms that I witnessed as we were sailing. I think it's, I mean, it's such a gift that you took this trip because it deepens your understanding in a way that you can't really experience through reading. You know what I mean? Yes. The fact yes. that you visibly were there, that you talked to the people, you touched the earth, you were in the ocean, you saw everything with your own eyes. I mean, that, like, I, I stopped to think about what you will do with that and the great, like, the changes that you'll influence because of that experience. And I, I think that's one of the things that when we set out on our own personal adventures, whatever they may be, we don't really, we do it because we're excited about doing something that we dream of but we don't really in the front of it know how it's going to change us on the other side of it and what Absolutely. what we're able to do in the world because of that experience. So Yes, and yeah. I can give you a great example of that. Um, we had been um, lake sailors, and then when we first got our boat, we were coastal sailors, so we never really got far from um, the sight of land. Mm-hmm. And um, then after some years, it was really our dream to sail off into the ocean. And we did that a couple of years into it when we sailed nonstop from Jacksonville to St. Thomas. And it was 15 days offshore with just the two of us. And that's well past the prediction of weather. You know, you, you basically put yourself out there and you take whatever you get. And that's well past where anybody can come to your rescue. So you have to have yourself mentally prepared and physically prepared and the boat prepared. And what was interesting about that was we read and we would talk to other sailors and we would go to conferences and learn all about how to prepare. But it was beyond anything that we could actually um, understand before we did it. Can you and so it was a yeah. leap. Can you describe that a little bit? Because I, you know, I told, I shared with you that my nephew and his girlfriend did something similar. They sailed um, the Pacific, the coast, and went out yes. to Hawaii. They had like thirty days at sea, which I can't even fathom that. And fifteen, yeah. even fifteen. I mean, it's like there's none of us in the real world walking on land can probably <laughs> fathom that. So, can you describe a little bit of what it's like to be that far out? And not have, like what? What's it? What's a day like? Like you're you're basically someone has to be steering, you know, at the helm all the time, all the yes, time, all right? the time, right? Yeah. Um, what it's like is um, exhausting, <laughs> <laughs> and probably one of the most challenging things I've ever done. You, you get to the point where, um, well, first of all, let me just say what it's like to do with your spouse or your partner is a a profound experience in the relationship Mm -hmm. because you have each other's back and you are completely dependent upon your partner for your own safety and well-being 
And so little things like reminding each other to drink water and big things like suturing up your husband's cut when he, you know, is bleeding like crazy. Mm-hmm. Um, things that you wouldn't normally do in life. You drive to the hospital, right? Right. Um, and then there's there's the the physical demand on your own body because everyone underestimates when you put this in your imagination, the motion of the boat at sea. We're talking about a 45-foot boat that is constantly moving. And so your body is constantly adjusting to those motions 24-7. And after about six days of that, everything hurts. (laughs) Yeah, I would bet because it's like, yeah, it's like being on a, yeah, I mean, I can't even imagine, but yes, because you're constantly having to balance Exactly. Every muscle. And then then the other thing is that you do your best to sleep in that environment, but you really don't sleep very well. So you start hallucinating. Oh, now that's when it gets fun, right? Yeah. But you know you're hallucinating, so you don't get too excited. So you hear voices of of loved family members that are long past gone, Uh and they come through loud and clear. And it's like, well, hello, how are you today? <laughs> oh, this is normal? Or was this a, during meditation or something? This is no, normal? No, this is, this is, I remember very distinctly once I was trying to boil water. And just to do that, you have to wear your, your fall weather gear because you will spill the boiling water and you don't want to burn yourself. And so I'm trying to pour the boiling water into the, the press pot thermos. And my grandfather suddenly is standing behind me saying, now be careful with that. <laughs> And it's like, well, hello, Grandpa, I'm going to be careful. Well, you're going to spill. It's like, yes, I know I'm going to spill. But, you know, we have these little dialogues. But, you know, I don't, want to, I don't want to make it sound like it was unappealing because as crazy as all this sounds, you get to a point in the journey where you experience, experience something that I can only call like transcendent endurance. Uh, right, I right. realized that there was profound joy in the doing of it because I had wanted to do it for so long. Mm -hmm. And even though it was, I think marathon runners must have something similar to this, even though it's hard Mm -hmm. and uncomfortable, it is a joyous experience. Well, and it's, I mean, you must just feel on the, like, so you're going through it and it's, it's hard and there's joy, but then at the other side of it, you're like the, the inner strength that that builds the inner character of knowing that you can do that must yes. be huge. That must be huge. Well, I don't know if my character was was um, developed in some um, new way, but okay. the the realizations that you have, mm-hmm. you know, when on that particular journey, um, what was driven home really loud and clear, you know, this lesson from the great Atlantic teacher was the lesson of impermanence, mm-hmm. because. You would set the sails to be just right for the weather, and then you'd set them again to be just right, and you'd set them again to be just right, and a beautiful day would turn into a nightmare and a heartbeat. Mm. And there was never, you know, we got to the point where we could never say, this is a great day. All we could say was, this is a great moment, or this is a terrible moment, because it was change after change after change. And you really started to understand that we live not only on the ocean, but on land in this context that is flowing. Mm -hmm. And so we end up trying to fix something in time and space 
and it ends up being a little ridiculous because it can't be fixed. <laughs> exactly, because so, it's all going to shift. We have no control exactly. over that, right? So learning to surf um, the waves of impermanence, quite literally on the ocean and quite figuratively on land, is a skill. And that's what I feel like I learned um, while, while I was on that particular journey. To appreciate and to actually... Um, welcome impermanence because right. you know sometimes you lose the good stuff you want to hold on to that because you really like it and you prefer mm -hmm. it mm -hmm. but sometimes there's the bad stuff and you can't wait to let that go right so I, I really started to understand that impermanence is the ground of creativity and transformation and opportunity and it's not just a reflection of loss and sorrow but it's a reflection of, you know, possibility. You know, I think that I love what one of the things I love about these conversations is that almost every time the the guest like you highlights on something that is so perfect for me to hear right now in my life. And I hope the listeners are finding <laughs> the same thing because I'm going through the same, I have the same sort of moment, not at sea. And I, you know, I'm not trying, I'm not having conversations with my grandpa right now, but, um, I, <laughs> well, that's probably good. <laughs> yeah. Right. I needed the, that message of the, the impermanence and that it's so, I bet like I'll get in a, in a rut where I'm really wanting this really good thing to keep lasting but then if the if it was the reverse, if it was a not so good thing, you know, I'd want the opposite. So I have to be more open to like, let the flow of it happen. So that was mm -hmm. a really good, I think people should remember that every day. I also wanted to go circle back for one second. When I talked about the character building, I probably said that backwards. What I really meant is that experience probably showed the strength of character you have. Because some people going through the 15 days at sea, who may still be developing their character or needed a lot, you know, I didn't have that inner strength yet. And you've done that work through all of the work you did prior, uh, might not have made it all 15 days, <laughs> might've called in for the helicopter. That would be me about day four. <laughs> um, so, so I think that's part of it. When we get in those really harder situations in life, that's where we go. We can go, Oh yeah, I did build that, that inner strength over the years. You know, that is there for me to rely on. And that's a good it's a good lesson to know that it's there. Well, I think that's a really good point. And let me just talk about chapter one in the book, which is on fear. And um, I think that the, everything has to start there because we experience strong emotions and we need to know how to deal with those first. Mm -hmm. And um, the, by the time we got to our offshore journey, we had a lot of um, familiarity with the boat and we had already mastered some some things which were pretty fundamental. Um, can I just share with you a little excerpt from the beginning of the book? Absolutely, I would fear? love to hear it. Yes, definitely. Okay, thank you. Mm, I'm excited. So this is <laughs> this is chapter one on fear. It takes place at Toluki, the Abaco Islands, Bahamas, on December thirty first, two thousand and eight. I look upon the jagged shore to calculate the time until impact. It's difficult to know exactly, because the anchors scrape the ocean floor, slowing our approach. The storm is building. Waves slam against the bow and drive us backwards. The ship's engine picked this moment to stop functioning, so Dave and I are suddenly, inexplicably, without power. The sun is slipping low, and soon we will be without light. 
I sailed my ship Wild Hare to this spot because I wanted lobster from the reef for a New Year's dinner. But this is a place of peril in a gale, especially with a busted throttle cable. Now I'm exposed, disabled, at risk of losing my ship and maybe my life. A primal panic simmers at the base of my spine. It wraps my intestines. My limbs feel thick as logs and my thoughts are slow. They roll into consciousness with the speed of old movie credits. Usually I'm a quick thinker with good judgment, but fear is turning me into a sluggish animal, a bear sliding into hibernation. Wind, please stop blowing, I whisper. A cold blast strong enough to make me stagger in place is the answer. Wishful thinking is my problem. The promise of buttered seafood seduced me into believing the wind and sea wouldn't turn foul until late in the evening. The storm would come more from the northeast, and this lobster-peppered harbor would remain flat. But in reality, the 54-degree cold front textures my flesh with goosebumps and shoves the boat toward ruin. The sky and ocean froth in a matching Soviet color palette. I don't know what to do. So that gives you a sense of, you know, ah. <laughs> no, I'm, I'm writing. And, well, first of all, your writing is beautiful and gripping. Thank you. Thank so you. thank you for sharing that. And I'm sure everybody listening will want to definitely read more. But even that last line, I don't know what to do. You know, we've been trained in life to not say that out loud, right? Mm. And I think, at least that's what I find, like we always need to know the, the next answer. School teaches us we have to know the next answer. Saying, I don't know, I don't know what to do is a hard thing for us to say, but there are so many times in life where that actually happens. Yeah. And, and accepting that gives us room to, to create the answer, to find the answer. But Exactly. But uh, denying it makes us like stuck, completely stuck. Well, it does. And this has really big implications, I think, because when we are going through our day and we have these strong emotions that that impact us, Mm -hmm. we become disabled, Mm -hmm. physically, mentally disabled, just like, you know, I was that day, I, I was not able to function um, in a way that was skillful to save our ship on that day. And thank goodness, my husband with his mechanical capacity, and the fact that he had pre-rehearsed for this moment mentally, mm-hmm. he was able to keep functioning. We were able to save ourselves that day. But the the wake-up call for me to realize that my strong emotions can stop my skillfulness mm-hmm. was huge. And when I think about you know things like, because I'm an environmental advocate, I think about things like climate change. And I think what's happening is that so many of us have this this visceral fear that kind of shuts us down when we think about it. It's like, oh, it's too big. I don't know what to do. And so we don't go there. But we really actually need to keep functioning, find a way to deal with our strong emotions and work through it so that we can begin to be skillful in dealing with the challenges of our time. That is such a great message. I mean, like we should stop on that like and reiterate it. The strong emotions disable our skillfulness because that can happen on all levels in our life, you know, on yeah. one-to-one relationships um, yes. to saving ourselves at sea to climate change. And I, I, I absolutely agree. When I start thinking about climate change, I, for one, am one of those who goes, I don't even know where to begin. 
It's too big, you know, and I just, and it scares me, you know, when you were talking about, um, the bleached reef, I I mean, I just felt such a sadness for it, but that Mm. emotion is so strong that it, that I don't know how to take a step, you know? Right. Right. And I think one of the things that I try to do with the book is through the storytelling, through these experiences that I had, through the my own spiritual ahas, mm-hmm. um, try to also show how I dealt with it in the moment mm-hmm. that was um, very practical. And then I end up each chapter with a, a short meditation mm-hmm. so that people can begin to experience sort of the thought process applied to their own life. I'd like to know a little, well, first of all, that what a great rhythm for the book. I can't, I can't wait to read it. In fact, I was going to ask you for an early copy, but I didn't know if that was allowed, but I can't wait to read it. (laughs) So what's the date? Just a quick, I will ask, we'll talk again at the end, but is is it, it's in November. What date does it come out? November 8th. It's coming out. Yes. It's a publication date. All right. So, um, and it'll be everywhere. Books are sold. Okay. Not stole. Everywhere books are sold online or in bookstores. Right. You can even pre-order and we'll put all that information. Well, we're actually, this is coming out at the same time. So by then it will be all together. Um, I forgot about that. See, I'm learning too. Um, I'd like to have you talk a little bit about how you um, came upon a practice of Buddhism. Oh, yes. Because that really seems to be a big part of your whole story. Well, it is. And I do want to clarify that there are many different types and ways of practicing Buddhism. And mine is very secular okay. and, and very practical. So uh, it's more Eastern philosophy than than any kind of religion. Um, and I was um, when I was an environmental advocate, um, it was hard. Um, I, I was um, like advocates do. I was seeing seeing the way that the gears were turning and um, inserting myself, inserting my organization in to interrupt and stop those gears from persisting and turning in the way that was being harmful to the environment and to people. Um, My organization, the Center for Resilient Cities, um, is an organization that creates, uh, helps to create resilient people in resilient places. So what we would look for contaminated uh, post-industrial landscapes in the middle of cities that were in neighborhoods that were really quite troubled because there's an environmental justice issue. And a lot of times the, the people with the least means to live elsewhere are the ones that are living closest to environmental ruin. Mm-hmm. And so I would look for those areas in cities and then work with communities in creating a new vision for that landscape. And then actually the organization would acquire the landscape, clean it up and turn it into parks and community gardens and natural areas and restore the environmental um, uh, function of them. So, you know, absorbing stormwater runoff and things like that. And you would think that that would sound like um, apple pie (laughs) and who would possibly be against that. But there are reasons why, those landscapes are that way. Mm-hmm. And um, so interrupting that and saying, let's do something different, actually was stirring the yogurt. And um, I took a lot of flack for it personally. The organization took a lot of flack for it. And eventually that wears you down. Right. And I was, um, my husband and I were in a bookstore one day and he held up a book by Pema Chondron, who's a wonderful Buddhist teacher. She is. And she is. yes. 
And it was the book Comfortable with Uncertainty. And my husband and I had had a conversation recently about, you know, not really knowing the direction of our life and things. And I mouthed to him across the bookstore, oh, you so need that. (laughs) (laughs) And then on vacation, he was reading it and he kept reading a little bit and putting it down and going, huh. And then reading a little bit more and putting it down and going, hmm. And so I, of course, had to read the book. And turns out it was me that got really excited about what was in those pages. And then pretty quickly after that, I discovered Thich Nhat Hanh, who ended up being my Zen master, when he came to Wisconsin for a retreat um, back in 2003. Mm-hmm. And the rest is history. I, I just couldn't read enough of his books. I found a local practice center to sit and meditate with. I went on retreats, um, not only in the United States, but in in France, where his root monastery is, and uh, Plum Village. Mm -hmm. And um, I eventually became ordained in the core community of Plum Village. So, uh, yeah, so that's really the lens with which I'm looking at all of these experiences that I had at sea. And it's really where I started to transform my advocacy work before I went sailing, and then what has completely now transformed my advocacy work after sailing. Can you describe that a little bit, like what the change is in your Mm -hmm. advocacy work, like how it's changed since you've been back? Yes. Um, uh, And I asked that question because you told me a little bit yesterday, and it was such a beautiful story. (laughs) Uh, Well, thank you. I want everyone to hear this. Well, yeah. um, It's been a profound change in my life, too. before I went sailing, I, I worked, you know, 60 hours a week. Um, I tried very much, you know, to be mindful in my work and to um, breathe in, you know, when I would uh, feel uh, a tension or a stress or a sadness or an anger or whatever it was, and then breathe out compassion. You know, I had these these tools that I would do. But um, I, I Got, kept getting increasingly alarmed about climate change, and I wasn't sure that the work that I was doing in cities was exactly addressing that. And then I felt well, I was starting to feel called that I really needed to do something about climate change, but I didn't have any idea what. Mm-hmm. And so sailing was really a retreat into nature to figure that out, what the next stage in my life was going to be. And um, when you're in traditional advocacy, you do things like you you do a power analysis where you figure out who's for your mission and who's going to be working against the mission and um you you're trying to uh, meet the expectations of donors so you tend to be a little ambitious um and and you you've got so much to do and you're in the public eye so you tend to rush through things And when I spent this time in nature, I realized that nature does not rush. (laughs) Everything is a long time in the making, Mm -hmm. and then it changes in an instant. But you can you can really see that everything is 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 um, a a whole stream of cause and effect that has these these causes and conditions that you can really tune into, and see that you know there's there's these wonderful points where you can grab if you would you know use this metaphor grab the rudder Mm -hmm. of what's happening and just turn that a little bit and change what's down the line so i I had these experiences in nature and then when i got back i was no longer willing to define who was for and against me Hmm. i was no willing to no longer willing to be angry or blame anyone for what was happening i wasn't interested in rushing anymore 
because as soon as I started rushing, I was no longer of service. I was no longer thinking clearly. And I, I, I know that, you know, as much as I wanted to be um, accurate and truthful, I always feel like I was truthful in my work, but I think there were times when I did exaggerate or spin my message to make my point. Mm-hmm. And that, I just decided that's unethical, you know? So I needed to be able to say what was true without exaggeration or spin. And of course, I didn't want to work long hours. And I, I, a funny thing happened was I was no longer willing to argue my case. And I noticed that I did this thing where whenever I wanted to prove my point or, or really emphasize my point, I would have this quick inhale and I would start to gesture and I'd be like, you know, uh-huh. and I was about to say, but, and like really get into it. <clears throat> And I've, I've started to realize if I could stop myself there mm-hmm. and just listen for like twice as long as I wanted to speak, mm-hmm. that oftentimes I didn't have to say a thing because I would, I would hear something different that, I, that didn't need a retort. So when I got back, my, my advocacy now is much more deeply rooted in my spiritual practice. And I don't, I don't look at you know friends versus enemies. I just make friends. And I cultivate happiness and share my joy with others because if I'm happy, even in the midst of, you know, disagreement, mm-hmm. we can we can continue talking and um, I can actually help make another person who may, may not see things the same way I do also experience happiness. And, and then there's a relationship. So there's hope. Well, and I think the the bottom line is really getting to a point of understanding you know, yes. I, I like I like to think that everyone's doing what they know best to do, even if, if what they know best to do is greed or something like that, like it's what mm-hmm. they were taught or what they, mm-hmm. you know, somehow that was, that was the learned goal for them. Mm-hmm. I like to think mm-hmm. that, you know, the more people understand each other and understand what really the downstream of what's happening, that at some point their eyes would open to a new view as well. Well, and I think that's really important is that if we were to define or, or notice that somebody is, is trapped by greed, mm-hmm. you can't blame them for that. Right. Because as you say, there are causes and conditions in their life that has made that their right next move. Mm-hmm. And there we can help each other see. I like to think that if you took a person who, you know, on the surface we would view as completely greedy and self selfish that if you took them to a point where they could have all knowing of what what they were doing, of what the impact was, that meant downstream for their life and for their children's lives, or the you know a thousand years forward on the earth, that they would be they would they would awaken to something different. You know, it's more of just people don't look that far ahead; they look at yeah. what's the next thing I want or what whatever it is that's driving them. But I just think they aren't thinking bigger. You know, well, and I I agree completely. And I think there's another layer to this, too. And and it was one of those things that came alive for me while sailing, which was that there is no separation between myself and what's happening around me. Mm -hmm. And I could be sailing on a beautiful day and I would feel beautiful. I could be sailing when it was really treacherous and that would make me feel physically ill and so that sense of inner and outer mm-hmm. just evaporates. It's a blind. I, it's a, yeah, it's it, all the same. 
You're right. And so I think that what happens for us on land is that it's really easy to start thinking that we can be separate from another person or we can be separate from another circumstance, that there's me and then there's them. Mm-hmm. And when you really are tuned in and open you start to understand that my happiness is completely dependent on your happiness. And I need this work to work for everyone because I can't just carve out a piece of this pie and be happy for myself and take care of my family. Mm -hmm. If your family is starving because your family will react to my family, you know, and the same with nature, you know, Mm -hmm. it's like we have built our society on the notion of separation from the natural world. And yet, we eat food, we breathe air, right. we drink water. So we are completely dependent upon the health of the natural world. And that, you know, my, Thich Nhat Hanh talks about how the environmental crisis that we're facing now is not just political or economical, economic or, or social. Mm-hmm. It is a spiritual crisis. Because we are believing that we can exist separate from what's happening. And in fact, we really need to open up our understanding and, and know that if the environment is going downhill and becoming poisoned, we are becoming poisoned. Yeah. And I, I just like what I love, too, is with each of these conversations, like I already have had this um, absolute continual calling to learn more about Thich Nhat Hanh and read, I read some of his work, but not in depth. And I can see, you know, part of it is an evolution. 10 years ago, I wouldn't have understood anything that he wrote. Mm-hmm. You know, five years ago, I could hear something he wrote and go, mm, I like that. Now I feel like I'm getting to that point where I need to read what he writes. and <laughs> I need to understand oh. it at a depth that, you know, and, and find a place to meditate with people and start building that part of myself because I know that that's going to enhance everything that I'm doing right now. So I love the fact that just in this small sharing and experience, we're, you know, we're moving towards something greater as a whole, you know? And it's so funny that you share that because, um, I don't know, 20 years ago, I, I bought one of his books and I started to read it and I thought myself, this is ridiculous. (laughs) Duh. It's so simplistic. What is he talking about? And I just threw it in a box. Mm -hmm. And then years later, after, uh, when we were changing our homes, because we were moving onto the sailboat, I opened up that box and I saw the book. And I, now at this point, I'm a deep practitioner. And I was like, Oh, I completely wasn't ready for this. (laughs) And that is so much the truth. That is so yeah. much how it is. There, I've had that time and time again with, um, especially spiritual related books, that um, I'll read them and then years later, or you know, sometimes it's a year, sometimes it's five years. I'll go back and like, this is the best thing ever. <laughs> Why didn't I get that? What was going on? But it's we're just not ready. We have to be open enough to hear it and see it. So I, th- what I would want to encourage people to do is to keep going back and keep right. keep trying because. Uh, once you get to that point where it's the right message for you, it's uh, it's mind blowing, actually. It is. It's very profound. Mm-hmm. So I have another question. I, I'd I'd like to. Be, I'm kind of curious about which is what you're curious about. So we know we've learned about um, the three braids of your book and areas that you've focused a lot of attention on in your life. Is there something new or that you're starting to 
get an inkling to learn more about like something new that's lighting you up and giving you um, another perspective? Mm. Um, well, this whole book experience is brand new mm. for me. <laughs> oh, that's right. Uh, yeah, I have um, uh, Parallax Press is publishing it and they have uh, a publicist that's actually scheduling book talks all across mm. the country. And I'm going to be meeting a whole lot of people and talking about these things. And so it really is opening up um, an opportunity to learn and to grow from just all of those relationships that I'm anticipating. Um, so I'm very excited about that. And um, um, besides that, you know, I have had since coming back to um, the land, mm -hmm. I started looking around and saying, well, if I'm not going to go back into the day in, day out, nonprofit work, uh, because I couldn't imagine that anybody would want to hire me if I was not willing to, to work those hours <laughs> right. and, and do conform to those no normal ways of being. Um, I said, what am I going to do? And so I started talking with other people that are in the Plum Village community about continuing Thich Nhat Hanh's teaching on the environment. And very quickly, within less than a year, we formed the Earthholder Sangha, which is a global affinity group that now has members from around the world and, and practice communities um, from around the world involved in taking um, nonviolent direct action through like flash sits in public spaces and um, participating in um, the People's Climate March and other marches around the country. Um, and also developing um, spiritual teaching material on the topic of earth wisdom that, um, you know, earth as a Dharma door, earth as a, a, a way of awakening and understanding who we are in the universe because of our relationship to the earth. And Thich Nhat Hanh has given us books and, and numerous teachings on this, but to continue that effort and to really bring more people to using this as a path to go, oh, I get it. I know who I am. And I know who you are, and I know where we are, <laughs> and it's great. <laughs> that I mean, I love that you're you're blending this into something new, and I I I don't think people really, or maybe they do, but there's something really profound in how you walk in your life when you start um, settling into the connection. Mm. Don't you think it's every every interaction is different. Every mm -hmm. I mean, when you start really settling into a bigger purpose than mm -hmm. the next day. You know, the, um, I don't know. It's, it's, I think it's a beautiful thing that you're doing. Are, is there a way that people can get in touch with you to learn more about these? Oh, absolutely. Um, my website is heatherlynman.com and, um, all of those connections are going to be okay. on the website. Um, if people are particularly interested in learning more about the earth holder Sangha, then they could go to earthholder.org. Okay. But uh, heatherlinman.com has all the information about okay. the book. And another thing that's fun is that um, I have a um, reader's study guide for groups or for individual contemplative journaling and meditation that I've included on the website that people can find that has um, for each chapter of the book, 
just wonderful um, questions to begin to consider, you know, well, what does this mean to me? And, and what do I really think about what she's saying here? Do I agree with that? And, and how might I apply that to my life? So there's are, lots of opportunity to study. I'm so excited about it. It's such a full, a full launch. You know, you've provided everything for people to really experience and learn from what you did, which is really a gift. It's a gift to well, everyone. Thank you. Thank you. So how many cities will you be um, visiting on your tour, your book tour? I don't know, but um, the estimate, we think, is about 20. Okay. But we'll see how that all comes together. Okay, uh, good. They get booked, you know, a few months in advance. So right now I have um, a bunch. And they're actually also on my website. You can okay. see where the events are. All right, great. Yeah. Well, Heather, this has been such a joy getting to know you and um, learning about your journey. And I'm so looking forward to reading the book. Um, as, as a reminder that we're recording this prior to the launch. Otherwise, I would have already read it. I'd be asking <laughs> lots of questions. So, um, well, we can do it again if you like. <laughs> that, I'm sure we will. I'm sure there'll be so much more to talk about. Yeah. And um, hopefully I'll, I'll get a chance to meet you on one of your stops. You know, if we, oh, wonderful. Yeah, that would be yes. lovely. Yes. Oh, well, thank you again. And um, we will all look forward to reading it. Well, and can I just say that I love your podcast. Oh, thank you. That you have such you have such a way of of um, being curious and drawing people out, mm. and you know, glistening particles <laughs> is a fantastic concept of you know, shining the light on who we are and 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 how each of us each of us is a gift, and each of us has something we can offer the world. So thank you so much for doing this good work. Oh, thank you for saying that. I have to tell you, it's every second of it is fun. So I'm a little selfish about it, but <laughs> it's like, <laughs> it's filling me up just as much as uh, people are enjoying it. So it's good to hear that. Thank you. Thank Welcome. You. And I know that, that, um, things are really falling into place for you. We've talked a little bit about mm -hmm. the the fact that uh, the universe is cradling you and, and, and helping this to come to be. So that's when you really know you're doing good oh, work. <laughs> I know it, it's, Oh, it's, I step back sometimes and have to go, Did I, is that me? Am I doing that? <laughs> Cause it's so, it's all lining up so perfectly. It's just stunning, but it, it actually, and then again, it's what you said about the flow of, the impermanence. And I mean, I don't mean to say that it's going away, but I mean, I'm just enjoying every minute of it because it's such a beautiful thing to be in right now. It's like a sunny day at sea, you know, where the winds mm -hmm. are perfect. And th our job is to just really soak that in, you know? And when it gets rough, touch that place of transcendent endurance. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> because it's there too. It's there. I know it is. It's been there a while. It's had some practice. <laughs> All right. Well, I will talk with you again soon and I'll be um, online today doing a pre-order for your book so I can be one oh, of the thank first you. to get it. And, yes, it's um, available um, early at Amazon.com or Barnes and Noble and all the others. So yay. yeah, thank you. All right. We'll talk soon. Thanks, Heather. Okay. Thank you, Jane. Bye. Bye-bye. Oh, I knew that was going to be a fun story. Heather is just incredible. And the things that she's doing, the things that she's done, absolutely inspiring. The message that I took away the strongest from this particular story was the idea of impermanence. It's something that I do definitely have to think more about myself. You know, like 
when things are so great and it's so awesome and it's over, I'm like, oh no, 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 I don't want that to be over. But you know what? When it's super bad, I want that to be over quick. So I have to get used to that and accept that. Really soak in those good days, right? All right, well, thanks for listening. We'll see you next time.